Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claver, your host, and with me today is Caleb Wells. Hey, Caleb. Hey, hey. how are hey, you? Hey. Just you and me for host today. No, why? Yeah, why, why is hanging out with his family or something? You know, I mean, hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> I guess when you're in, you're in Australia and there's not so much COVID going around, it's, that's a lot easier to do. Yeah, but I also saw you, you posted something about bird attacks near where he lives. <laughs> Australia, right? If you know, you're not going to kill by COVID, but you're going to kill by a hundred other things. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird because I saw it on our local news, and that's how I knew about it. Huh. So I, I messaged <laughs> why. It's like this is like close to to him, and he never heard about it. So strange things. So anyway, <laughs> anyways, let's bring on our guest. Welcome, Stuart Turner. It's Friday. It's always Friday <laughs> on these shows, and I always, I always have a problem. No worries, no worries. Yes, I'm I'm Stuart Turner. So a uh, little background. So I've been working with C Sharp since it came out in 01, 02. Started working with it in high school and college and then just kind of stuck with it. So I kind of followed all of the transitions. These days I'm working remotely for a company in California. I One of the advantages of the COVID times is uh, being able to work fully remotely. So, so yeah, I just primarily in the .NET SQL Server space. So. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So did you choose .NET or did you just kind of fall into it because of where you were working? So back in high school, I kind of started in with C and C++ and then got into Java. But then one of the things I noticed was the the UI. I mean, I mean this is kind of a, a silly thing to say, but at the time, it's like, well, you know, the, the Java UI turned me off. I'm going to go find something else. And so when Microsoft said, hey, you know, we're going to do Java++, like, okay, well, I'll start. In, and then as it transitioned into C Sharp, like, okay, this is actually a language that's really interesting to me. So that's kind of how I got into it. I, I don't think that's, I don't think you're off there. Uh, I didn't initially get into computer science and development because of the IDEs, users and interfaces, and right, and you forget comma or a semicolon somewhere and it blows up. And I was like, I can't do this. No, 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 no. So, no, no, no. Well, especially now, like the, like C plus plus twenty, and and you forget it in the wrong spot, and sometimes it's a you get three thousand lines of errors for for one semicolon. It's like, no thanks. <laughs> well. And that's something we were actually just talking about. I'm having to do some PHP and soon Larval work. And I am spoiled by Visual Studio and .NET with the debugger and the stepping through stuff because my coworkers use an echo and var dump to test and debug their PHP. So <laughs> I'm having to adjust. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an unfortunate adjustment for sure. Anyway, so Stuart, why we got you on the show today is because you are an expert in the database side of things. And my understanding is you work with a number of different ORMs. And so we were just going to, to go through some of them, the differences, usages, performance, and kind of pick your brain. Yeah, sure. So 
first off, how do you break them out into categories? Where are the different architectural styles from? Yeah. So, your first, so, what is an ORM? What is an ORM? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, uh, object relational manager. And so, a, the, the one that most people will know off the top of their head is either Entity Framework or EF Core, uh, the, the modern replacement for Entity Framework. If you're old enough, you'll know about linked SQL, the predecessor to uh, Andy Framework. The idea behind an ORM across any language, you know, there, there's ORMs in Ruby and PHP and all of them, uh, JavaScript, is that there's so much boilerplate in translating a the result set of a SQL statement into an object in whatever language you're working with. And so the idea is to kind of minimize some of the boilerplate and and kind of make it easier to collect the data and work with the data that you actually need to work with. And so most uh, most ORMs uh, have some level of, at the very basic, a translation engine from the result set into an object of some kind. So hence object relational manager. So this will date, I just want to say this will date me and Sean, but we both have worked with ADO.net Mm-hmm. More than I would like to admit. <laughs> and that's when you have to handle all of that boilerplate yep. and ORMs have made yes. lives yeah. so much easier for my I got team. I got so tired of that, all that boilerplate mm-hmm. stuff. I think back in about 2005, before I knew what ORMs were and knew mm-hmm. anything about them, I wrote a script that converted every one of my tables into an object. Hey, there you had, go. Yeah. Had load, save, update methods on all these... Yep objects just so I didn't have to deal with the SQL statements, just right. dealt with objects. And I just did it that way. And that worked so well. And then, wow, that, then we got into Link to SQL and Entity Framework. And it's like, wow, this can really go a long ways and, and be really helpful. Right. Yeah, I agree. I, said, I have written some ADO.net. Thankfully, I have not written a whole lot because, it, like I said, it, it is a lot of boilerplate and it's really annoying, especially... If you if you do it for you know performance reasons, you identify which column number it is, and then you go change the you know either the SQL query or or worse, you do it on a stored procedure, and somebody else changes the stored procedure, and now you've got now you're completely lost on on and, and of course it fails in production at runtime because you know some DBA changes uh, everything underneath you. You're like, well, okay. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, you know, no ORM, which is basically ADO.net, and then you have. The basically back in the day, you had Link to SQL, which was, I mean, I remember with uh, .NET 3.5, they, they introduced Link and in in Link to SQL. And it's just basically this idea of being able to write a SQL query in C Sharp, and then the engine would automatically translate it into a SQL query and do all of the parsing back so that you could get objects back. And then from Link to SQL, they transitioned to Microsoft, transitioned to Andy Framework, and then to Andy Framework Core. So those kind of tend to exist in the in the traditional ORM sense. You also have what are called micro ORMs, and the idea behind a micro ORM is that you still want to write your SQL, you still want to handcraft your SQL. All you want to do is is wipe out the boilerplate, uh, the ADO.NET boilerplate, and so. Uh, those, you know, so Dapper and Petapoco, those are, and there, there are a couple others, but those are the two that are kind of last man standing uh, these days. They, the idea is that basically, yeah, you just give it a SQL string and it goes and executes, it parameterizes the parameters, it executes it safely without SQL injection, it runs the results and then, and then gives you objects back. 
And so you're not doing any of this link stuff. You're just doing a basic, basic relation uh, management uh, mapping. Stuart, when it comes to micro ORMs versus mm-hmm. traditional ORMs like Entity Framework, I want to get your opinion. I've used both. Mm-hmm. And I would say five or more years ago, Dapper could really compete with any framework because any framework wasn't necessarily as performant or the SQL queries they wrote right. or they created could have issues, right? You could be getting too much back or there's bloat. I really feel like with EF Core, they've resolved a lot of that and uh-huh. the performance is much better. And you can actually debug or log out the exact SQL queries they're creating and they would be what I would write. And I don't prefer to write SQL on a day-to-day basis. So which do you prefer at this point, a micro RAM or something more like any framework that handles it all for you? Uh, more like an Andy framework. And and honestly, it goes back to why I really liked Link to SQL back in the day, or that transition into Link to SQL back in the day. Because, you know, in my mind, you look at you look at the SQL strings and in a way they are magic boxes that the code doesn't really know anything about. And so if you go in and you want to refactor a table or you want to change a column name or you want to do any manipulation of the schema, then you don't know necessarily what queries get affected by that change, especially with a micro ORM. You just have all the, uh, and in a lot of ways, it's similar to running stored procedures. Well, you know, okay, stored procedure works until you change the schema and then all of a sudden you've lost your with a more traditional ORM, with Link to SQL or even some of the modern one, you get that you get that compile time check. If you have ways of managing that transition so that you can be consistent with your model to the database, then the compiler will ensure that the model is being used properly throughout the rest of the code. So that so that if you change a column name, you can either refactor it in the C sharp directly or You'll get the error messages and you can go, you can identify, oh, well, I, ch- I used it here, 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 here. I need to update those queries and either rewrite them or, or fix them or whatever. So I, that's tends to be why I like the more in a fancier ORM than a, than a micro ORM. For people who are new to .NET or ORM's entity framework link, do you feel like there's, there's a big learning curve or do you feel like it's something that you can you can pick up small bits and pieces and build your grow. You don't have to be doing group buys and funky stuff right. and link from the get-go. I think Entity Framework and EF4 do a good job of, of kind of doing that. If you're not familiar with SQL, if you're not familiar with databases, if you're not familiar, then I think, yeah, link kind of is still such a different paradigm than imperative or, or even object-oriented programming to, the, to write SQL code. Because at the end of the day, SQL is set-based and it's about processing all these, you know, this series of data and manipulating it as a set rather than one by one or this and that. And so there is definitely a paradigm shift. And so I, you know, at at the end of the day, I think there's there's only so much that we can do from C-sharp to mitigate that. But I do think that the modern ORMs do a good job of kind of making it simple, especially when you have a fairly straightforward one that just said, okay, insert, here's your object. Update, here's your object. Delete, here's your object. When they, Especially when they start doing the change tracking and all of that stuff, that, that does make that side of it easier for people who don't have that background in SQL. I remember the first time I said, so, saw some of the uh, link to SQL syntax and I went, what? It's like, that's backwards SQL. And so right. from something in something where select this is like, why didn't they just right. use SQL? 
that kind of that kind of syntax, not the you know real. Well, I, you know, but, in some way that that's actually you know the interesting thing is if you go back and and this is a bit of a digression, so cut me off if you want. But if you go back to like the original uh, SQL developers, they they wrote SQL in a sense that they how people would talk, select from where that that was their mentality. But some of them said after the fact they really should have done it in the other order, and and partly because they didn't have IntelliSense or or autocomplete or anything back then. But you can't do autocomplete on the select until you've written your from, and so you process that backwards. And a lot of people, when you're actually writing SQL, you actually process it backwards. You don't even not even just an IntelliSense or an autocomplete issue. It's just a mental model, you know. And I know I do that. You know, I'll do select star from write my from and then come back and fill in the select because I need to know where am I going? Why am I getting there? And then I can go figure out, okay, well, this is the specific fields that I need. And so if you go back and talk to some of those people, they say, well, yeah, okay, we probably should have actually written it with from first and then where and then select because that operates, that's more of how we operate in terms of writing a SQL query. But note why C Sharp did it that way is, is, for, the, is for the intelligence reasons. Um, right, right, right. So I'm also, I'm also glad that they came out with another syntax, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, method syntax as well, because yeah. that's pretty much what everybody uses anymore yeah. is the method syntax rather than the, the English style query syntax. Uh, the only time I so, use the link syntax is when I, do, when I need to do a lot of lets, and I know I'm going to do a right. lot of processing on specific columns and then return the result, then I'll use the, I'll use the link syntax, but I, it's the function uh, based most of the time, yeah. Yep, me too. So we have discussed expression trees on uh-huh. a few of our episodes, right? And and I've had the pleasure of creating one of my own, which was an interesting, interesting task in and of itself. I understand, right? That is one of the ways that link is converted or translated to SQL. Are there other ways? And can you go into more detail about I, expression trees from your standpoint? As far as I'm aware, the expression trees are the only way that they that any of them do it. Is that uh, most of them will have a starting point, whether it's a a known type that's known by the by the uh, the ORM, or whether there's a dot as queryable or a dot something that translates it from a local object into a database type object and triggers the building of expression trees. But yes, expression trees, as far as I know, are the only way that that SQL that these fancier ORMs do their do their job. That's just, it, and, it, and it makes sense. I mean, at the end of the day, how else are you going to get, translate this, you know, this, this block of code? If you had it in regular functions without the expression trees, how do you know what that function does in order to translate into SQL? And for those, those of you who have never seen an expression tree, go look one up because it, <laughs> it, it, will, it will twist your, your perception of, of how link works. And you look at it, you're like, how they get link to work for us easily inside of .NET and C-sharp and the editor versus what is happening in the expression trees (laughs) is night and day. So I feel like in some ways, the expression trees are the predecessor to Roslyn. And what I mean by that is that the expression trees were kind of the first step in saying, oh, well, let's treat code as a series of objects that relate to each other as a tree of objects rather than just as MSIL. And then, and then, you know, once you have that idea, then they went into Roslyn and started creating these, you know, these, and if you go look at any of the Roslyn, like how you do compiling or anything with Roslyn, there's that 
same element of, okay, we've got multiple layers. You've got your top layer, which is just the pure text. And then you have your, your syntax tree, and then you have your semantic tree, and then you have your compiled MSIL. And each of those in some ways translate at some level to the concept of expression trees. And so it, I think that was kind of the predecessor of, hey, we can actually do this with any of our code. And I'll put in the show notes a link to a, a YouTube video that you gave us about uh, how it translates link all the way down to into SQL. So if people want to check out the video and see a little more visual, they can check that out. Right. Well, and the, the other thing I didn't get is you know, the, the new generation of ORMs that, that kind of makes itself distinct from even any framework or EF core. LinkedDB and RepoDB are the two that I'm aware of that, that come out. And the idea behind those is that where Andy, Link to SQL and Andy Framework shine was in the select statements. But you still need to do change tracking. You still need to do... And so if you want to update a bit on a, on a record, you download the record from the database, update it, and then submit it back. So you have two round trips to, to make that change. And what you, what you find with Link to DB and RepoDB is now there is turning link uh, insert statements and update statements into link syntax. And so you can actually write a, a links uh, query, well, not a, not a traditional, but a functional uh, uh, syntax for doing an insert statement, and it will translate that into a SQL insert statement. And the same thing with, with and where that gets really powerful is, is like with uh, merge statements. Uh, you can't do a traditional merge statement in EF core. You have to you have to go write your own statement and either put it in a, in a store procedure or or provide it as a magic SQL string, you know, in the middle of all this other stuff. That's whereas with these two, that you can actually write the, the merge statement in C sharp expression trees, you know, as, as you would anything else, and it will actually write out a, a merge statement as SQL, regardless of whatever database you're in, whether that's SQL Server, or Postgres, or or MySQL or Maria, you know, it, it knows how to translate specifically into each of them. And then you still have that compile time checking on your model, even for the more esoteric forms of SQL queries. I think with Entity Framework, there, are, there is a way to, to do some of those things. Like you can create an object that's disconnected yes, and populate it and then you know connect it and update and things like that if you really want to go but, about it. But it's, it's, not, it's not a friendly way to do it. Messing, messing with change tracking can cause yes. all kinds of issues because I've been there. I've actually had to... Right do work to where for this chunk of code, turn off change tracking so we can do our own manipulation over here behind the scenes <laughs> hidden and then say, oh, okay, here you go and pass it along. Otherwise, it barfs on itself. The only time I, I like to turn off change tracking is when I'm trying to do bulk loading. Oh, yeah. Well, and see, I, I've gotten to the point where I actually don't like change tracking at all. I do most of my queries, I do no change tracking because in theory, I've already got my, especially if I'm doing web stuff, Either I got my object already or I'm creating a new object. Either way, I don't necessarily need the change tracking specifically. I just need to run an insert or I need to run an update. And if I'm going to run an update, then I would rather take the ID off the object and, and set the object, set the items on that object. Or something that you can't really do very well in any framework is, oh, I need to update the, you know, this value on 20 different records. Any framework, you go download all those records, change them, and push them back. Whereas with repo or link to DB, you say, okay, you know what? Here's your ID. Start with the ID, filter it out with the where, and then call your sets, and then call your updates. 
and then it just writes a SQL query that does it, you should have one round trip instead of 20 or 30 to update all these records. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. With me, change tracking, right? It, it is a double-edged sword. And if you're doing basic stuff, it works fine and it can simplify mm-hmm. things. I think the, the thing that we ran into and looking back, maybe we overcomplicated this, right? But we were using dynamics. Mm-hmm. Well, we did it for a reason that we, we just didn't say, oh, this sure is cool. You did. Um, <laughs> we, we were building a survey tool that had like 16 different types of questions, right? But they all had the same basic structure. And, right, if you're updating a survey or you're submitting it, we don't want to have to call 20 different endpoints with all these different questions and then have the database associate them right. separately. So we decided we would have one question controller with the CRUD, CRUD endpoints, API endpoints, and then we would pass in the surveys with the questions as dynamic or expando objects. And then further down, we could actually determine what they were based on type criteria sitting on them. Right. But what we ran into was when we were trying to update or delete child objects, because some questions you could have children and of course questions right. themselves or the child survey that change tracking was freaking out, right? Because right. because of the way we were we were approaching it. So we had to do some of that manipulation there. So in other words, it was interesting, but don't do what we did, just use GraphQL. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So yeah, there, I, are there some are there some techniques and tips that you have for really getting the best performance out of these ORMs, you know, especially like in any framework because that's the most popular. Right. So I well, I you know, the with the with the original any framework, uh, the the number one performance tip was don't have too many tables or or keep them separated into multiple multiple contexts because the number of tables you have it was like an n squared algorithm for for dealing with something. I don't know I remember exactly what it was, but there Back in the day, there uh, we in my team. Back in the day, we we stayed on linked to SQL until about 2013 or 2014, uh, avoiding any framework because we had thrown everything into our linked to SQL co- database context context object, and EF just would not handle it with any any sort of reasonable performance. Uh, just creating a new context would would measure in the matter of seconds, which you can't do that on a on an API call. So. We, so we, we stayed with linked SQL for a long time because of that. These days, honestly, a lot of them do a really good job. Some of them are, are better than others. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of the performance these days is really about which ORM you pick in the first place. Because when you write your query, a lot of them, they have their query, they have a caching engine inside. And so if you have, if you have a link query that's created and saved and you run that every time, they'll just uh, cache the translation from that link into a into a SQL statement and then change the parameters. And so where the performance issue is, is in the translation, the, the mapping part. Can they translate from a the final select statement into an object quickly? And that's where, but honestly, these days, so many of them are so fast. Uh, I, I think there are at least five of them uh, these days that are equivalent, if not faster than doing it uh, directly in ADO.net. And, you know, I remember with Entity Framework specifically, ended up doing multiple queries mm-hmm. because it was faster to do multiple queries to get the data back and then actually combine them and oh, yeah. manipulate them inside of C Sharp versus 
entity right. framework. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know that that's as much of an issue these days. It, it's really not. Um, where you run into issues is uh, N plus one type queries. Um, that's a that's a that's a an anti pattern. The N plus one, and and where that where that comes from is if you have if you're selecting master detail, you know from you know you got a master table, you know orders and details or you know whatever. There's a variety of master detail relationship. If you don't do them right, then yeah, uh, different ORMs will translate that into a single query for the master, and then a bunch of queries for you know, for each record in the master, a separate query for the for the detail. And so, yeah, I certainly remember back in the day doing that, doing some translation. Okay, well, I'll just get all the masters and all the details and then do a two lookup and then join them back together that way. Uh, these days, they've gotten a lot better. Unless you're doing two separate types of detail, uh, most ORMs will translate that into a single large query and do basically the same thing. They'll, just, they'll do a lookup and, and then translate it back into a series of, of ob, you know, master detail objects. Uh, so they've gotten a, they've gotten a lot better, you know, across the board on, on being able to do that. Some of the um, mistakes I've seen people ahead, do sure. is 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 like when they're doing read only, not doing as no tracking, that, those types of things. I really wish they would have had that at the context level before okay. in the old in the full entity framework. Mm-hmm. You can't do that now in EF Core. You can you know, set it so it'll do it for all of them, which it, which is really nice. And then another thing is a lot of people don't do projections. You know, no, they, don't. they don't select just what they need into a DTO or, you know, with now with C sharp nine into a record to just get those fields. And so they end up basically just doing a select star right. on, on the whole object and not realizing why is this so slow? Well, it's because well and, have... and ironically, that's actually one of the reasons why I don't like the, the micro RM. I mean, just a, a nitpick more than anything else. But in order to do the micro RM, you have to have a separate DTO for every type that you want to bring back. Um, or I mean, or you have one that has a bunch of fields, and then you only select a few columns, and then it brings, and then you don't know whether the columns are filled out or not. But you, right. where, where you don't you, know if they're intentionally null or they're just null because you didn't right. pull the data back. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, whereas if, you, if you do it with a with an ORM with a select statement on an ORM, uh, then you get then you can do an anonymous type that you only need for two lines later, and then you can translate it into something else. Or if you're just doing some business logic and you don't really need a something that gets returned back to a higher level, then you just do an anonymous type, and you don't and you can minimize how much how many columns you select. But you can also, without having to create a custom DTO just for that one call. This is another performance-related mm-hmm. topic, and I have some people that are on one side or the other. They use it depending on needs. What do you think about eager loading versus lazy loading, right? Actually yeah. initializing the, the enumerable or the list or just leaving it and then then three levels down, then you actually expand it out. What's your, what's your opinion on that? I tend to favor uh, eager loading. And one of the biggest reasons is because A, I'm ultimately going to need it anyway. And B, if I wait until later to query it, then that translates into an N plus one anti-pattern. I just don't realize it unless I do a performance check across the system as a whole. Because, because if you do lazy loading, then every single one of those is a separate query. Now, where lazy loading right. helps is if you're not doing, if you're not going to process every single one of them, at that point, shouldn't you be filtering your query in the first place? And <laughs> so right. I, you know, I'll, I'll tend yeah. to favor eager loading on that one. 
Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right. Database first, model first, to code first. Database first. Hey. Uh, <laughs> wow, I was not expecting that because uh, I'm so used to doing code first. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. So, well, so think, fill us think, in. Well, I'm so curious. here's the thing, and, and this is where I, I really kind of went to my own little niche corner anyway, is I think that database versioning is an incredibly important topic that people don't pay. With code first, you have to figure out how to translate from version A to version B. And and there's some magic in there, uh, no question. Well, and I I want to speak to that because I don't I don't suggest you just go create models and our classes and then do do the migrations and let code first handle it. That's not that's not going to work. No, I, I don't advise that at all. Every time that we've done this, we've actually had to go into the fluent migrations and manipulate them to right. do the many to many or has many, or those all the, so you're going to have to get very familiar with flow migrations to do it right. So right. I just, I want to clarify that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and that, that, to me, that kind of gets to the point is that, is that if, you do, if you're doing code for, you had a, you're going to rename a column, you have to go tell the ORM, hey, by the way, this is a rename from this, you know, from this column name to this column name. So don't go drop a column and add a new column and lose all the data in that column. You know, just do a rename and, you know, and so, yeah, so that, yeah, so I'm not code first. Uh, what I do these days is I have, I've created a kind of a little system that I use where I take the, I have a version history table in the database. And that version history table basically just is a, the name of a SQL file and who executed it and what time they executed it. And then in the code side, what I do is I take the SQL code, I create those migration scripts. And I usually prefix them with a date so they're all sorted, you know, by order. And then I and I shove them in there. And that's how, you know, so then I know, you know, to get to where I am right now, I run all of these scripts. I can run that on a blank database or I can run that on a database that has all but the last two or whatever. And it it just kind of works automatically. I have a the when the initializer, so when I run do my DI setup, you know, before I even finish the DI setup, I go run the initialization and it grabs all these scripts and runs them automatically so that I know that the database matches what version I'm expecting it to match. And then I have the model generation code set up to create a temporary database on a SQL server. And I run all of those scripts on that temporary database and then run the model generation off of that finished database. And then, and then once it's generated, I can go delete the database. But the idea behind that is that now I'm working on migrations, which is kind of the most important part of moving from one version to the next. I can work on those in SQL as I know it's going to work and then and then let the system take care of migrating it automatically and making sure that my models match what's actually in the database. And I can see your approach probably working out better or being more helpful in a CI/CD situation. Uh-huh. Yes. Right? Because with the entity framework, the, the CLI tools doing the migrations, you have control, but you you don't have right. the kind of control you have with your with your workflow. Right. right. Gotcha. Yeah. And I got it, you know, and I got it set up. And 
the interesting thing is I've actually got it set up to run on application load, like I said, in the DI system rather than on the CI system. And the, the idea there being that, okay, if I need to take my application and drop it in a new instance on a new database for whatever reason, I can just set, you know, reset the connection string, point it to that, run the application, and now I've got a brand new database point, looking exactly like I want it. Do you run the the entire history of the database scripts, or do you create snapshots every so often to, to I, run you know, the whole that, thing? That, that's kind of I've, I've wrestled with it over the years because the project I'm working on right now, I've got about four years of, of SQL scripts that, and so it, it does take a little. I, when I say a little while, I mean it, thirty seconds, forty five seconds to to run all the scripts. So it's not too bad. So I don't. That's why because it hasn't been a pain point, I haven't actually worked to fix it. But yeah, at some point, I probably should go back and snapshot and say. Okay, as of this date, this is what it looks like, and and then kind of clear out all of these old SQL scripts. But you know, kind of the nice thing about having all those old scripts is that if I never need to go figure out why I made a particular table look the way I did, I got the history of how I migrated from. Oh well, I thought I did it this way. Oh well, I did a migration after that. Here's why it looks like this, and I got and I got that in a a pull request. So then I got all the information about that pull request with it to know, okay, well, this is this is why I did that. Yeah, I think I'd keep all the scripts, but I, every so often I'd make a folder that right. started with a snapshot and yeah. then had its continuation scripts on it until the next yeah. snapshot and the next snapshot had been in a different folder. But yeah, I have I should, all I that history. Look at doing that. I, just, I haven't done it yet, but mainly because it hasn't been a pain point, but that's, yeah. a, that's a good idea. I should probably do that at some point. Well, actually, I was going to say, 30 to 45 seconds for four years of scripts and database content is that's pretty quick. Yeah. So, well, it helps when you're when you're working on a, on a database that doesn't have any data in it. And all you're doing is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, then, so then, the you, then you switch SQL versions and you try to run those old scripts that were written <laughs> in old SQL. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Yep. Well, I, I, I mean, the nice thing is, well, at least on the on the Microsoft SQL side, is is they don't deprecate SQL code that often. I don't tend to use stuff that's kind of on the the border edge of of going away. So, <laughs> thankfully, I've not been bit by that. But that is a that is a good point. <laughs> Actually, I got a question for you guys. I, what's your uh, one thing that I found recently that that I've kind of fallen in love with is create being able to create tables and have a, a JSON column for all sorts of like extraneous data and then being able to query that directly. I mean, since uh, what, 2012, yes. Microsoft SQL has the, you know, you can go break open the, the JSON and actually query data directly out. Do you guys use that at all? I, I've fallen in love uh, with that recently. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I do a lot of Angular yeah. stuff. And uh -huh. so, so what I often do is I keep the entire JSON uh -huh. model into okay. one column and then just extract out the fields that I need to query on into okay. its own column within SQL Server. Okay. And we also found it for like maybe an array of items that mm -hmm. are specific to a type that we don't want to have to go create another table with a one-to-many relationship or whatever. It, it, it just doesn't seem that need is there. And it's fairly simple right. uh, information. We will just dump the JSON array of those items or those identifiers into its own column and then we can pull those back and iterate through them inside of c sharp which for us makes makes perfect sense so yeah absolutely yeah that i definitely see the use case for that and it can simplify 
both the SQL side and, in my opinion, the development side, the code side, uh, depending on how you do it. No, I agree. I, I, I mean, it's a, I've got some. I've got some people that I talk to that that are that are so adamant about everything being a perfect third normal and having an array, having a JSON array in a field is not technically third normal. And my response is, well, how are you updating that array? If you're doing an, an update on a single record in that array, sure, that's not third normal. But if all you're doing is replacing the array every time, that's still third normal. It's just a different type of data. So that doesn't doesn't really count to, to me as breaking third normal. So. But even then, it's still kind of that that ongoing debate over whether JSON should be in the database. I'm like, there's just so much power in being able to stick some stuff in there and say, you know what, whether whether it's just a random set of, of setting fields or I know I've got one where I have actually three layers of object hierarchy. And that would be incredibly painful on setting up all those tables for it, whereas I just stick a, a JSON in there and just and then just open JSON three times and and now I've got a now I've got it expanded and I can go join against other tables. Yeah, that was gonna be my comment is is I, I have some JSON documents that to break that out into relational would it take 10, 20, 30 tables uh-huh. just for, for one little JSON document. And, and it's just not worth it because it's basically a lot of the time it's just storing it. Right, uh, right. I, I'm not querying it you know specifically on a where clause or anything like that. That's why those things that I need to filter on, I bring out into a column. But yeah. the majority of the data that's in that JSON is just there to recreate the document when somebody wants right. to view it. Another example that I've developed in the past was, when we were doing this for Angular, was a form generator, right? Mm. So instead of having to create manual form builder for every Angular form, we had actually developed kind of a form generation JSON script that would actually, you could iterate through and it would build out the inputs and things of that nature. And that's not something that you can simply translate into SQL tables, right? So it made perfect sense for us just to store the JSON. Right. And then when it comes in, it just, it spins through it and builds all the, the fields and inputs as needed. So, yeah. So is uh, our ORMs only useful for relational databases or do they have a purpose with NoSQL databases? I would say I would say generally they don't. I mean, most ORMs don't have a whole lot of connection to NoSQL databases anyway, because the the API it doesn't fall into the traditional ADO.NET API. And most ORM rely on that base foundation of ADO.NET at some level. Um, which level depends on which ORM and how you how you. But I think the the, the other side is that most no SQL databases, uh, like the one I'm, the one that I'm familiar with is RavenDB, and they have written their own library client library for dealing with their OR. You know, their yeah. You know, so if you're going to deal with Raven, you're going to use their library to talk to their database, and and so it doesn't make as much sense, you know, because it, it's the, the context and the queries and the how you parse that data is just so drastically different from a traditional relational database, at least in my opinion. No, that makes sense. I think with Hot Chocolate and GraphQL.net, mm-hmm. I think they have their, right, they had to build out their kind of library and, and ORM, right. so to speak, to handle that. So that, that makes sense. It, it is very different from your traditional SQL database. 
I yeah, Raven's kind of one I, I'd love to spend more time with it, but I just you know I don't have I don't really have a reason to you know if I, uh, you know if I look at what I'm what I'm trying to use it for most of the, most query most applications that I'm working on a relational database just makes sense. I don't really have a need for a NoSQL database you know or random documents or anything like that. But I think the kind of the indexing opportunities and the the unique ways of cross querying this data is in a NoSQL database is, is it can be powerful. I got turned off by NoSQL early in the early days because so many of them were were just basic MapReduce statements. And it's like, well, I can do a MapReduce. It's called a join. Why am I not? Why am I not just doing this in a, in a relational <laughs> database and move on? You guys are, are are throwing out the forty years of relational database you know, knowledge that we have. I think modern NoSQL databases have a lot more to them. It's not there, but I haven't navigated my way back to them after getting turned off by them in the early days. In in episode uh, twenty seven of this show, we talked with Oranini about oh, okay. yeah, yeah. RavenDB. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was an interesting uh, conversation. He's a character. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 in a good way. I've written a couple of yes, yeah, right, comments on his blog before. It's, it's, I've always had good interactions with him. It's, it, he's, he's a good guy. I actually, I, I don't think I was on that episode, but I have followed him previously. And, and, and mm-hmm. I looked into RavenDB like you did years ago. And he just, right, he's honest to a fault. And I yes. actually, I found that refreshing. So, yeah. Well, and I, I love his blog because he, especially the performance ones, because he, he points out things like, well, you know, you would only notice this if, but now that you have noticed it, hey, by the way, here's that. <laughs> Any experience with in Hibernate? No, I, I, uh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I have experience with it. I don't, I don't even want to hear that word. Uh, that was the, I mean, because I, I remember I, I was already full bore into I went straight from Link SQL into, or from ADO into Link SQL, and so by the time I found out about in Hibernate, I was already happy with Link to SQL. I was like, well, I'm not going to go learn something else uh, that doesn't seem to be quite as because at the time in Hibernate didn't have any of the expression trees or anything like that. So they they were just kind of the the uh, I don't know the backwater version of of Link to SQL. Well, okay, I'm just going to go stick with Link to SQL. <laughs> And and for those of you who are still using in Hibernate and love it, don't send me any hate tweets, please. I just I don't. Right? I've I have had to, to at work Caleb with Wells it. codes. <laughs> you know, in less than ideal circumstances within the last five years, and so it just it's one of those things. It's like classic HP. You don't want to have to go back to. So well, I think I think it's interesting how many technologies, especially in the .NET space exist because it existed at one point and nobody's really said, oh, well, we're going to decommission it. They said, well, we're going to keep maintaining it because somebody's still using it. Well, okay, maybe just say enough is enough. We're going <laughs> to... And, and hey, Stuart, if you're, if you're good, we can, we can start to wrap up. I mean, because we've, yeah, we've been talking yeah, I was trying for to a while. I mean, that's completely up to you. So. Yeah, I think we're at a good point. Okay. All right. So that was great. Oh, wow. That was a lot of fun. It, it woke yeah. me up today. Good talk. Yeah, I feel good. Good talk. Yeah. So let's move on to picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. 
I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Yeah, sure. All right. I, the two applications, I mean, outside of Visual Studio, of course, that I, that I use the most would be Fiddler and LinkPad. Uh, Fiddler is kind of one of Sean's favorites. <laughs> <laughs> he loves his link pad. Link pad. Link I've pad. never paid for it. And but and I've told people about it. And it's like you gotta use it, you gotta use it. And they don't oh use God. it. It's like you don't know what you're Oh, I, I, I bought the first version. The the first version of, of Link Pad that I bought was version four. And then I bought all the upgrades since then. And it's just it it is so incredibly useful. Well, I mean, I started back in the day because I was trying to figure out because I'd be writing these large complex queries and trying to figure out why it wasn't translating into SQL that made sense. And so, okay, well, let me just jump in LinkPad, switch it around. Okay, well, if I do this, it comes to, you know, the ORM kind of translates it better so I can, so nowadays it's more for, uh, nowadays I honestly, I use LinkPad more than anything else, just random random C-sharp scripts. Yeah. Oh, hey, you know, I need to, I need to figure out how this operates or, uh, and more importantly, I've got Fiddler running in the background with LinkPad. And so I can run LinkPad to, run some API calls and see what Fiddler pops up on the background uh, half time because there's authentication on the web service and I don't want to have to go plug in that authentication in Fiddler. So I'll just write it in C Sharp and then you go watch it in Fiddler. Right. What I do a lot with LinkPad is it re it's really good at helping you find those input plus one issues. Yes, it does. Because you can, you can watch it every little query that it sends to the database. You can see what it sends and you go, oh, wait a second. I didn't expect that many queries to be sent. So you can go through and track that down, or I can take that SQL that it generates and then put that into SQL Server Management Studio and, and right. try to work out some better indexes. So right. I can see Absolutely. the query plan and all that kind of stuff. So it really helps out there. Or whenever my boss wants an ad hoc report and it's like, that, okay, that's, that's just, exactly, just, I, I've had to do some, I've had to do some random data manipulation in the database. Like, well, I'm not going to go write code in the, in the program to do it. So here, I'll just write a script, you know, go through all these records and kind of, you know, do some mini, you know, minor manipulation because I can just write a one-off script. So what's oh, more like? Have you seen the have you seen the latest beta? The they're the new beta out for LinkPad 6. And they're and he's actually releasing it out where if you write the C sharp, it will actually decompile it into C sharp one. So you can see kind of all the back end stuff for all the magic, you know, syntax that you write. And then it'll also print out the MSIL as well as the x86 assembly so you can kind of see oh is this a how did this translate into into an actual what's running on the chip hmm. i do have uh, version six a license for it but i have not downloaded the beta check it out yeah uh, 6.13 i think it's uh, he just released 12 last week and he's working on 13 so whenever 13 comes out that, that'll be the You're right i think uh something else you you yeah. talked about before what's more link more link. So you, when you start talking about link, you've got all these you've got all these functions that operate from the database side. But the concept was was so tremendous that it doesn't just work on the database. They're, you know, the link to objects is also an incredibly powerful too, tool. And so with but you you have your traditional you know projections and filters and so on and so forth. 
But what Morelink does is Morelink comes in and, and it offers some of these additional tools that you don't necessarily know that you need. So they're the, they're the segment operator. So you can so you can call dot segment. And so if you have a, a list of objects and they need to be broken up into three or four, but you don't necessarily know, you know what the barrier points are, you can call dot segment and it will return an I enumerable of I enumerable with each of those different segments in it. You can do there's, a, there's lead and lag. So if you need to, so you know, going back to the, the database lead and lag where you need to access some data from the next row or from the previous row, those functions are in more length to say, okay, I'm going to operate on this on this enumerable and say I need to I need to operate on the previous one or the next one. Or with a window, I can give I can say, give me a rolling window of three or four or six items within the throughout the enumerable and it will give you an i enumerable of i enumerable of whatever and it will and each one of those will be a, a specified list window of that so there, there's lots of cool tools in there i found it probably about three years ago and that i don't know if you guys ever do like uh advent of code or any of these code puzzle programs but uh more link to me is like i got into it because hey you know what i need to know how to do this one little thing that you know not traditionally represented by a, a, a regular link statement, but oh, you know what? I got the function in more link. I can now now it's a one liner, and I I can move on. Cool. Yeah, Caleb did uh, C sharp Advent last year, so that was yeah. okay. Interesting. Well, Advent oh, of Code, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah Advent of Code is, is different. It's something different. They're the they're they they're the website adventofcode.com. and okay. every year this guy does twenty five days of programming puzzles. And and basically what it is, it, you know, so the puzzles are so you got a text, you got a you got a, a program description, and then and then a text input, and uh, it's asking for basically just a single string or a single number out, and so use whatever language you want. It's not it's not a language specific, but most of them require programming of some level, whether it's a counting problem or a a join problem or a filter problem, you know, in the what I what I've enjoyed about doing that is, is it, it kind of keeps my algorithm skills sharp because so many of the program some of the problems you've got your you've got your naive solution that's n squared or n cubed but there is a fancy solution that you know n log in or whatever that and so you just have to kind of go back and figure out okay well what's the right approach to this problem and so it keeps the, it keeps the programming mind sharp. I like fancy solutions, especially yep. when they're one liners and they do. <laughs> what 50 lines of code would have done otherwise. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one cool. of my, one of my, I, I've got a, I've got a GitHub repo for, for the, for the advent of code and, and uh, feel free to look sometime because I, because I do have some, some of the fancy one-liners for. Yeah, definitely. Nice. We'll do. All right. So uh, my pick this week is going to be entity developer by DevArt. And, mm. you know, most of my experiences back with full, full entity framework and EDMX files. So, you know, I've always been a database first type of person and right. like like visual because I just think I'm a lot more pr productive with that graphical interface with the EDMX right. and, you know, the early versions of, of dot, any framework core, you know, didn't mm -hmm. have visual, things like that. So it's like, uh, don't want to, it just takes me a lot more time to really go through it. So I use this entity developer from DevArt to do all that. And it's compatible with EF framework, you know, one through six. It's also right. compatible with EF core and hibernate if you have to do it. Um, you, can <laughs> do, you can even do link to SQL with, with this. So 
uh, it's, it's nice, and it gives you that full graphical interface, and it actually gives you a lot more than what the old EDMX editor right. did as well. So, check that out. I don't remember the EDMX editor. Maybe that's why I ended up going code first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember handcrafting some DBML files for Link to SQL back in the day because the the model generation wouldn't do what I wanted to do. So I would just finally, it's enough with enough. I'm going to go handwrite this. And so I go manipulate some stuff in there. So I, you know, there you go. having a more modern tool. Be this, this tool that I, that I suggested is it has a lot of out, options for outputs. So, you know, it'll spit out code first style syntax right. for you. And you, you can tell it, you want it to be attribute based or, or not, or all that kind of things. So a lot of, a lot of configuration options in there. And there's lots of different additions. So depending on what you, your needs are, the cost can be anywhere from free to a couple hundred bucks. So it's not too bad. Yeah. Cool. Right. Caleb, what's your pick? So my pick is also development related, but not .NET development related, right? Because of what I'm having to dig into, I'm, I'm having to pick up a lot of stuff that I'm not familiar with. And uh, one of the big video uh, training sites for Laravel is called Laracasts, right? And I watched a few of them and and they were fine, but I needed one that had Laravel and View with Nuxt and GraphQL. I, I wanted I wanted to see something with the whole package. And I ended up finding it. It's a video training site called codecourse.com. And so I I pointed up for the subscription. It's $12 a month, which is right, it's it's that's fairly cheap. And he actually lets you download all the videos once you're subscribed. And so I watched, watched that tutorial and then I looked at a few other ones and he does a really good job of digging into or going through PHP and Vue and a bunch of the different frameworks and kind of that, that whole ecosystem. So if you are interested or you're digging into what I'm digging into, it's a, it's a really good site. I, this is a random question. Have you since you since you are working with PHP? Have you heard of Peach Pie? I have not heard of Peach Pie. Uh, PeachPie.com. It, I I only bring it up. I'm being silly, but but it's a, it's basically it's basically a the same thing as Iron Python. It's it's you can run PHP uh, on the .NET VM. Okay. All right. <laughs> I would love to convince them to do this project in .NET, but that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Sometimes so, that happens. Yeah, all good. All right, Stuart. So if our listeners want to reach out and get in touch, have questions or anything like that, how can they get in touch? Um, honestly, I, you can, I don't have Twitter. I do have GitHub. Uh, that's really about the only outreach that I do is, is on GitHub. Or, I think that's how I found you. So GitHub, there you go. <laughs> he he is on GitHub, and that's really all you need. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a I've got a couple projects that I've created, and then I'm I'm I I support the LinkedIn team. I support the link the more link team. I support a couple others. So, but yeah, that's that's primarily where I'm active. I I kind of avoided Twitter in the early days, and I kind of avoided all of these others. So I you won't find me there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only on there for this. I mean, all right, I, I have an account from like shortly after Twitter existed, but right. it laid dormant for years and years and years. In this past year, I got back in and changed my name and now I'm posting for the podcast. Um, right. But I get you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I you know I, I tried you know two or three times to to start up a blog, but I just never I just never kind of got into it. It's just hmm. 
I, I can't find I can't find the commitment to to write you know regularly and so it's just like okay whatever it's not worth it not worth the hassle. I um I can understand that for those of you who have actually gone to my YouTube channel and watched some of the videos, you may have noticed that I haven't created one in like a month, and that's because right you just run out of time, especially with the new project. So I I completely get it. All right, thanks, Stuart. If our listeners want to reach out and get touch with the show, they can get touch with me. I am on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. And maybe it's like the crew it's you. Maybe we should change it to Jaws. And I am Caleb Wells coach. So thank you guys. All right. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.